Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, there is a nice piece of stock music playing behind me that a talented composer worked really hard on. So let's enjoy it. Wow, almost overshadows the saving big when you switch to progressive part. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. but I'm the third therapist. So both my parents were psychoanalysts. So you kind of, you're, you're actually kind of accurate. Okay. Yeah. Well, what was that like growing up in a family that, that was very prominent? It's an interesting experience to go through because, uh, because of who my parents were more than even psychoanalysts and therapists. I had latitude with certain things and I did not have latitude with others. Right. My rules were very different than a lot of the kids I knew growing up. Mm. Uh, but certainly a more psychological upbringing where you had to look at yourself perhaps a little bit more as a kid. In what ways? Like, what, what were you, how did that manifest itself? Great question. I think you were, I think you were naturally going to be more aware of what was going on with your thoughts and feelings. Uh, I did uh, get exposed to therapy at a young age, certainly got very exposed to Freud, Freudian psychology psychoanalysis and also because not only were my parents therapists uh, they were educators and ended up with uh, not one but two institutes to train other therapists hmm. now you mentioned freud were they both on the same page and in, in terms of what they their focus was like or who they kind of patterned their um career like their philosophy after there was some they had a, a mentor in common a gentleman named Hyman Spotnitz, who was sort of the, let's call him the godfather of modern psychoanalysis. So uh, the next generation of Freud, perhaps. He was a mentor to many uh, and influenced a lot of the psychoanalysts in their training in the New York City area. So that, that played into it. It certainly played into my mother's parenting with both me and my sister, if nothing else. Oh, interesting. Now, what are your, what are your thoughts behind psychology today? and uh, prominent theories or philosophies that you think are effective in psychology? Well, I think the human-based approaches are very important. Uh, sort of, uh, what would I call it? Uh, Self-psychology, we could, we could sort of name it. I think psychoanalysis has its part. I think people do have to look at how their past influences their present and will potentially, will potentially influence their future. I think people have gotten away from therapy 
into more of this coaching modality. I think a lot of people don't want to deal with issues like their emotions. So there's a, there's a challenge, there's a challenge there. We do have, before COVID came along, we did have a pretty strong mental health crisis. We still have it and probably are going to be reeling from it the next couple of years. The upside is that there's more attention to mental health. And I do believe more people are engaging in mental health services. But anything uh, person-centered, like the Carl Rogers theories, uh, I believe are very helpful. So you were saying that people maybe don't want to confront their emotions. What's What are some reasons why that I mean, it sounds like somewhat obvious, but I don't know. Maybe it's not. Some reasons why that is an issue. It's painful for a lot of people, particularly if they have to look at some of the trauma that they've endured. So they might avoid it. And again, if we look at all the mental health issues and how they play it out, we could be reasonably certain that people are avoiding their feelings and they're self-medicating them one way or the other, Mm -hmm. either through drugs, substances, medication, alcohol, food relationships, gambling, um, and there's different levels of abuse and addiction that go on. But what's clear is, and you know, you would, I'm sure, know this from your end of things with the exercise mm-hmm. side, is there's also been an obesity crisis, diabetes. Yes. People's self-care is poor across the board. And it, the number, if you consider our place in the world society, our numbers are very high, too high. Incredibly high. and. I'm not sure that number's swinging and going in a downturn anytime soon. Honestly, uh, it's. I'm with I'm with you. I, I think it's only going up. There's a future where I feel that's just not going to happen. I, I mean, I don't want to sound doom and gloom, but the numbers are pretty sobering, and the projections are probably going to be either right on or even worse at this point. You know? I'm in total agreement with you. I don't think it's going to get better until it actually gets quite a bit worse. Which is crazy to think because you're like, well, this is a not, not a good situation currently, you know. This, this is an advanced society with every – on one level, we have a lot of advantages, not across the board, but there's a lot of information now available. The re- reality is with the speed of social media, internet, the YouTubes of the world, we have information. We have the power of that. How people use it, however, is different. And mm. society has been struggling in so many different ways, obviously even more so now. So I'm with you that the, I don't see it getting better for quite a while, if, if, if it does, because we shouldn't be in this place in the first place. Right. Well, how do you think that the kind of the age of the internet or the digital age and frontier we're in has, how has that affected the psychology of humans, in your opinion? To say it's affected strongly would be as big an understatement as I could make. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I think the fact of the matter is it changed a couple things. The, in, in my practice, what we've seen is the difference between emotional intelligence and you know EQ, as they call it, versus IQ. So what we ended up with was this generation of kids who grew into adults, often, although not necessarily maturationally, high IQ, lower on the EQ scale, and there is a failure to launch, as they say. So all the mental health issues we've seen have gone on, particularly spiked during this last 20-something years. Uh, I remember being in my school psychology internship well before I knew I was going to become a therapist and certainly well before I knew 
one iota of what I believe I know now. And I was working in my old school district and I was watching what was going on. And let's say I'm seven years out of high school and I'm 24 years old, roughly. And one day I went to have lunch or dinner with my mother, who was still practicing in the area. And I said, you're never going to be out of work. And I didn't understand the ramifications of what I said until I went into practice much later um, because I, I missed the boat uh, I, just because I didn't know how bad things were going to get. And when you don't have enough connection, which is a downside of social media and tech, the eye contact, the addiction to phones, et cetera. And again, I'm not blaming it on it, but we have definitely become more detached and struggle more with emotional discourse. And that's why we also see a rise of problems emotionally, more so during this time. We've seen a spike in autism, et cetera, more struggle with uh, diagnoses such as autism, Asperger's, et cetera. So those, those conditions are on the rise is what you're saying. Like we're seeing more autism or people on the spectrum during this time period? My understanding that even as of 10 years ago, the numbers had spiked tremendously. And again, not to say that it's causation, but the correlation is there. I think parenting also very much changed. Families changed, the family dynamic, morals and values changed. Everybody trying to keep up with the Joneses didn't help matters. So you have a confluence of issues and what you end up with is fractured parenting. And ultimately, parents being able to say no when they really need to, to set the tone early enough for children. And then at some point, if children don't develop the way they need to, self-esteem or otherwise, you run the risk of uh, substance use. And we certainly know that the substance use issue has skyrocketed beyond whatever we yeah. thought it might be. So as a therapist, what what are your thoughts related to the, this? I don't know, maybe this sounds weird, but I'm saying like the importance of parenting. Obviously it's important, but what has been maybe the breakdown in parenting uh, that has maybe caused some of this on some level? Well, we went from, it's a great point. We went from at one time where we had more intact families. That's changed. There's more divorces. There's this notion that the divorce rate is 50%. And my argument is it's actually higher because you have 10 to 20% of marriages that have failed miserably but nobody's getting divorced. Ah, yes, yes. So, so again, if parents stay in a bad marriage in front of the children, the children are going to be the function of that discord or whatever you want to call it. Parents not being on the same page, parents wanting to be liked, parents wanting to be their child's best friend, parents not being the adults who set boundaries and rules. Ultimately, if your child doesn't hear the word no, they're going to have a tough time functioning in this world. So children have been raised in this society. And again, with tech, uh, finances, people having to work harder, longer to just get by, there's just such a confluence of factors. And ultimately, if parents aren't really, really focused on how much work they have ahead of them, they struggle. And uh Sad to say, but it keeps uh, the majority of therapists in business, much less, uh, much like, uh, you know, we would see pizza parlors uh, back in the day in New York City, one on every block. Right. And is it, uh, but is it a thing as a therapist that 
these in- individuals are having children and they are not themselves potentially ready to be parents as they haven't gone through a lot of their own issues. And so then they transfer those issues onto their children. Is that fair to say, or is that inaccurate? That's fair to say. I think if you have unresolved trauma, trauma we know sort of runs intergenerationally. If parents don't deal with their stuff, they're going to bring it into their marriage. Ultimately, it's going to play out in their children. So if we have addictions, that's going to play out. The children are going to watch it. And because you have highly intelligent children now, you know, going back to the idea of what tech has done, children have a higher vocabulary typically earlier. It does not mean they yes. have. It does not mean they have the the maturity that should be commensurate. And in fact, that gap grows, and that's where the problems really start. Uh, we've seen a lot of families where the child is so verbally smart. And what it often happens is the parents are so impressed, which is a little bit narcissistic, and suddenly the child learns that they have a lot of power in the family. Suddenly they're making <laughs> decisions, and they don't understand the word no. It's scary. <laughs> you know, we, we, saw it in the, we saw it in the 80s in a couple of ways. Um, one was certainly children being the voice on the voicemail. You know, we used to have answering machines. Yeah. And then there's the, you know, we took away the red markers in school because we didn't want any child to feel badly. You know, uh, you know, it's one thing, no child left behind. It's another, you know, no child ever hears the truth is different. But we, we were, we've been so concerned about hurting children's feelings. And ultimately, if they don't learn how to deal and cope, which is really the underlying problem, we have a, we have a real problem on our hands. And that's really where we're at. That's, that's well said, I would say. It's... Um... I have seen so many children, my daughter included, who um, have mind-blowing verbal skills. And, you know, my daughter's nine, and I hear her talk to me, and I'm like, I never had these conversations like this when I was your age. You know, I felt fairly dumb at that time. But they're being downloaded with so much. They're like computers that are getting super downloaded. And then when they're so impressive with talking with other people, you forget that they're extremely naive. Exactly. Extremely. And I think we, you're right. I think you see this and you go, wow, my child's very in, smart and intelligent because they have this great grasp of vocabulary, but they have no life skills, really. I mean, and, and it's that's, not like and they that's know what anything. It down, and that's what it really boils down to, right? Because if they can't function, doesn't matter if you have 180 IQ. Uh, you know, I often say, you know, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, went to Harvard. Yeah. You know, he had a little bit of social trouble, but clearly he was pretty intelligent. Yeah. But, but it doesn't it doesn't play out. But we've seen more of that because the child is so highly verbal. But and that again, I do believe that came with the idea that, you know, we have text, social media, they read, they mm-hmm. see. It's harder to lie to a kid. You used to be able True. to do it easier. It's much harder to and so getting them to do, <laughs> you know, they'll they'll have all their reasoning for I don't have to do this. And it comes down to a parent being, up, being able to say, uh, look, I run the show here. It's either do what I say or there's going to be a problem. <laughs> and that's what we come across a lot. And if you don't nip it in the bud early, you're going to deal with it after their personality forms. You're going to have more trouble. And I, I, I hate to see it. I hate to see it. I see it all the time. But I, I, I see it all the time. When people come to me very often. It's for parenting. It's really getting on the same page, whether or not they're married or not. 
but the level of uh, the level of discord between parents has grown. Wow. You know, one of the things I subscribe to a big time is like obviously having love, but having accountability. Both of those things are really important. So I've, I'm very diligent about if my daughter's doing well, I tell her she's doing well and I praise her. But when she's not doing right, I tell her that. I go, no, that's not good. We got we to gotta get better at that. And it, and I, I don't know, because I see a lot of this like helicoptering and this, the kids are soft, man to me <laughs> really well, soft yeah well helicopter parenting and the you know the snowplow parenting which is literally doing the things for the child so the child at the end of the day with both those they either develop anxiety and or a lack of self-esteem because they haven't had to really fall down and fail and learn how to get up from that and that's really what has come out of the parenting over the last two generations let's say and that's why there's so many children walking around with low self-esteem. And eventually, if you don't have self-esteem as you're growing up, your odds of getting addicted to drugs are very high. And the drugs are stronger now than ever. Wow. That's incredible. So what has really influenced you in your work as a therapist? What are, what are, what's been the biggest impact in how you go about doing your job? It could be, a, 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 it's a few fold. I mean, growing up around therapists, you see a lot of things. One of the things I did get to see is the fruits of my parents' labor, let's say, because I was around their practices. So I actually did come in contact with clients of theirs. I came into contact with students of theirs. So I really got to interact and see what my parents did. People would tell me. So that's, you know, a very interesting way to go. It's almost like monkey see, monkey do. So on some level, I knew that was going to affect me. When I came to South Florida, where I live now, I was introduced to more to uh, addiction, substance abuse, substance abuse, and chronic mental health through the mentor that I had. And I got put to work in a psych hospital, uh, chronic unit where people you know, were lo in a lockdown facility. It certainly opened my eyes because I had to work with things that I'd been watching my whole life growing up in New York. It's not like I've never seen people who were in, in this facility, but never had I been actually in the position where you better deal with this right now. Mm -hmm. So you certainly, even if you have compassion, it's going to be amped up a little bit more. And you got to really learn what it was like to deal with trauma. And I think that was critical for me to see all that and having to work on those skills. So you see a lot of it, certainly down in Florida. Delray Beach is, is considered the recovery capital of the world. There's mm. more clinical services for substance abuse, rehab, et cetera, than anywhere else in the globe. And while it's had some issues over the last 10 plus years, it's still sort of known for that. So it's a great uh, place to learn. I had a great learning curve, a great mentor. So, but getting to really get people to talk ultimately was sort of the driving force. What is the, or what, what is the most common trauma that people are facing uh, in your opinion? Well, there's, it's some form of abuse or neglect, emotional, physical, sexual. And what happens with these things? Typically, they get buried in most families. Rarely does something happen on that level where it's nipped in the bud and people can deal with it right when it happens. It usually gets buried for a long, long time. So the result of trauma very often, depending on 
the, the person's skills, coping, et cetera, is they may turn to self-loathing. How that plays out, it can be drugs, bad relationships, both. There's a lot of ways. Uh, self-hatred with you know, food is one of the great drugs. You know, no one has to ever pick up, uh, you know, cocaine or weed or alcohol. They can just medicate food and stuff down the feelings. So those are the three big ones that I always look for is to see what, what are the secrets somebody's keeping that they really need to talk about. And again, I come from the, the Freudian background that you better talk about your past. So if you've been holding this stuff in, uh, it's going to affect you. Do you have other therapists that are... I mean, probably, but that are just like, I don't agree with the Freudian aspect of looking back at things. Let's not, let's not look at that approach. There's a lot of people in general who don't believe that the number one response I typically get, well, Freud used cocaine. So he's, you know, he's written off <laughs> by many in that. But the reality is, <laughs> I think there are some, I think there are some therapists who actually don't want to buy into it and don't. And, and there's a place for it. It's not, it can't be everything. Uh, but I've found that most people don't look at it enough and their excuses are usually the same. And the, the main thrust you hear is, well, it's my past. I can't change it, which is true. But then if, if that's not the problem, you tell me what is. And they usually they don't have an answer for that. Mm. And what happens is you get stuck on your past. You get hung up on it because something got broken and it has to be repaired. And you have to do it emotionally, experientially. And usually that's what releases people to go forward. So it's, it's certainly, uh, I'll call it not controversial, but a lot of people, they're, they're stuck on wanting to do that. And it's because they're afraid, because they'll experience the feelings that they've been repressing for so long. Yeah. And they're, they're scared witless, which I get. You know, I understand it. I feel like a lot of issues that I've seen in people throughout the years and my converse, so many conversations have been with the past with growing up like this severe trauma and especially neglect of the past and that they carry that into deeply into adulthood, deeply um, into in ages that you think people wouldn't have these hangups, but it's, it's, it's severe. And I, I feel like not addressing that, it's just like, okay, well, we you know, we'll put a Band-Aid over that and move on. You know, it feels like a mistake, you know. They try, to, they try to minimize, and I think that's the problem. People minimize their problems, they minimize their feelings, and then they wonder why they feel stuck. And ultimately, no matter which, quote, form of psychology we use, it, the idea, certainly my stance, is get unstuck. Yeah. What are your views on uh, positive psychology? Well, I think you have to be able to utilize enough positive reinforcement. Again, if there's low self-esteem, which is usually the core of everyone's problems, it's a lack of self-worth on some level. You, any, any form of positive psychology is going to help because you have to create enough good around you. You have to also buy in that you're worth it, right? That's at the core of it all is like, how do I buy in that I'm worth it when I don't feel like it? And getting that aligned. So most people, especially today, you're going to see, and I'm sure you're seeing all the time, and, and I'm sure in your work, the positive piece is critical for them to, because they, they, they can buy into that. I totally, I, I've been in my business for almost 20 years and working one-on-one -on -one with people 
in their exercise progression. And the, the exercise certainly is a large part, but what I've noticed is the positive relationships may even be a larger determinant of their success um, that we have with each other, the stress or the level of stress that they have in their relationships with their spouse or significant others, children, that these things play gigantic roles in how successful the person is going to be in their work with me. And I often have to spend a lot of time on the psychological aspects of things, actually way more beyond the exercise portion of it, um, which is why I got my doctorate and a psychological-based degree, because I knew that was going to be important. Anytime you're dealing with humans, one-on-one and people, there's, there's a deep psychological chasm you're going to have to get in there and get dirty with. You know? Sure. And with, when you're dealing with physical fitness and or weight loss, it's going to come up. I was a trainer for years before I became a therapist. And the most important thing at the end of the day, whether it's training or it's being a therapist, is the relationship with the client. And if it's if the positive piece of it is what is really focused on the connection, you can almost reach any goal once you have that. And usually that's what when you're certainly when you're a therapist, albeit I definitely saw it when I was a trainer, that connection, because they're looking for you to play a function and role in their life that's missing typically. That whole missing part, I I think what I learned very early in my career was that a lot of people don't have a lot of other people to talk to about certain things that are very difficult in their lives. And I'll ask people like, who, who do you talk to about difficult things or things that have hurt you in your life or that are sensitive? And often the answer is, uh, I don't really talk to anybody about that stuff. So then I end up broaching that with them and becoming that person. That they, But it's amazing you think a person could have all these connections, all these friends, yet be so lonely and have feel they have no other person to talk to about those types of things. Yeah, they typically don't. I think it was a comedian, uh, his name is Rodney Carrington. I think he had a TV show yeah. uh, a while back. But he had this great joke about the fact that, you know, if you go to the hospital and you have 1,500 Facebook friends, they're not all coming. You know, you're, <laughs> you know he goes, you're, you're, they're not your friends, you know? <laughs> They ain't showing up, man. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I can't, I can't, I can't do it justice because when he delivered the line, everybody was, you know, was laughing because he just he was making a very valid point about it. But people, people have quote, uh, they don't have enough connection, and ultimately that's where where people are really suffering because there is a lack of connection, and in a tech social media driven world, it's even more so. You know, it's the difference between what your life looks like versus what it really is. And most people aren't, most people aren't posting the truth and their failures. It's like the, uh, you know, it's like the, uh, the bumper sticker you always see, you know, my child's a honor student at such and such middle <laughs> school. And then there's that one person who post had the bumper sticker, my child sold your child drugs at such and such middle school. <laughs> <laughs> as sick as and twisted as that is, very different point of view. So, uh, and again, we know because of all the depression and anxiety and the uptick in mental health disorders, while we have a lot of smart kids, they're struggling and not coping. And again, COVID, you know, took it on steroids, but we don't have enough connection and people are lonely, getting lonelier. I think there was one study, they said millennials, 
there was a very strong percentage that said they don't even have real friends. And, you know, that's pretty scary. But that's where we're at. I saw that too, actually, Jason. And it actually kind of broke my heart because I remember that time in my life and uh, I had actually way more friends at that time because I think it was just more relationships of more convenience. You know, you're in college or you're really young and, you know, I'm in my 40s now. And if they're having trouble now, they're going to have big trouble when they get older <laughs> because it's not as easy. And your life kind of shrinks as you get older and older and different things go on and you start getting into families and stuff. And it's really concerning. This, this, that generation is headed for some weird stuff when they get older. You know? It's, it's, it's going to be very tough. And with what we've been dealing with this past year, children's lives are obviously changing. And you have, you have, you have a daughter who I'm sure is being you know, affected mm-hmm. you know, within range based on you know, who's around yeah. her. But there's no way they can't be affected. It's just how much they're affected. So communication and communication styles will change. And again, if children learn the coping skills, the key is that they'll be able to function when something hits the fan later. That's really what it's about. So parents have struggled with that for years and years and years. And I'd like to say that it's gotten better, but I don't don't believe it has actually. Yeah. What's the hardest part about your job? I guess it's twofold. I've certainly seen families struggle and I've seen, I've seen families lose a loved one. You know, you work in this field, you're going to have to have empathy and compassion and you're going to see some loss. I've seen it. I've also seen loss and struggle simply with people dealing with a family member who's struggling with either mental health or uh, substance abuse issues and not necessarily getting to where somebody's actually dying, but rather just struggling and spiraling. You watch people's pain. And the reality is if you deal with trauma a lot, which I do, and I'm grateful that I can, there's a point where, you know, you're hearing a lot of stories and you see the human condition a little bit more than you probably anticipated and hoped. And that's a tough part of the job. And you knew you signed up for it. You know, you, you knew you knew it was coming. But you have to be mindful that you got to take care of yourself a little bit extra than you even thought. And some days are, are going to be pretty painful. You know, it, it's great when somebody cries in the office and it's really cathartic for them. Uh, but it's, you can see people's pain. Uh, so it's, it's a mixed bag. How does that affect uh, your personal life and how you conduct yourself? For me, it's something that I've always been aware of that I I have to be mindful and maintain whatever self-care practices that I have. I have to know when, you know, I've had days where I I realize, you know what, I booked too many appointments. So I have to be on top of my game and I have to try not to be Superman and I have to really think about what I'm doing and that whatever I do that's extracurricular, I take enough time. Sometimes you just got to know... not that I don't have to do it more, but put down the phone and disconnect from the world. Uh, so I'm, I'm lucky that I have outlets to do it. And I've had, you know, I've been able to do some of the bigger things that I've wanted to do personally. And I have to stay mindful that I've earned that. I deserve that. And if I don't do it, uh, that could be a problem. Most definitely. You know, I want to, one of the things we talked about um, before this was you got into acting, right? Yes. 
and you actually you had a goal to become an actor. I'd love to hear about that because I think it's such an interesting twist in your story and the desire to do that. Okay, so the simple, I'll try to give you the quickest version of it. So this is, this is 2020? It okay. is. <laughs> All right, so it's roughly this week, 1989. A very shy, quiet kid was a junior at University of Albany in New York, and the game show Remote Control was looking for contestants. Oh, I love that show. show. Okay. Yep. That's the, you know, that's the sort of the, the, the starting ground for uh, Dennis Leary, Adam Sandler, Colin yeah. Quinn, uh, among others, Carrie Wurr, uh, Ken Ober was the host. And basically they came to a bunch of schools and I got on this line to audition. They said, you have basically a minute or two, whatever it was, you have to impress us. I then went and did two impersonations for about 400 students and I got a standing ovation and I was I was stunned. I mean, I had never experienced anything like that. I was really shy, quiet kid. And after that, I said, I'm going to go do a little stand-up comedy. I did an open mic. And then after that, uh, I won a contest at the school. A national contest had come through and I I performed and I won. At that point, I knew I'd already taken one acting class. I knew I kind of wanted to. I always wanted to do martial arts films. So... uh, a lot of different things happened in the next year. And I ended up getting to meet a manager about a year later when I was doing stand-up. And I was really not ready to take some of her advice uh, because it was, it was significant. And I didn't have the wherewithal to sort of express myself and sort of say, well, can you work with me just the way I am now? And I put it to bed. And it already sat with me. I went to grad school. I just wasn't ready. I wasn't mature enough to take the, the self-esteem beating that I was going to take because I was going to take a beating. Right. And I had to wait. Uh, at 36, I considered it again. I was still performing stand-up here and there. I became a professional musician for, uh, from 41 to about 45. And at that point, right around there, I said, I've got to follow through on this. If I don't, I'm going to sit with this regret. And I kind of came up with a plan. How am I going to start my acting career? Get my license in New York and go back to New York and just go for it. And whatever happens, happens. And that's what I did. Wow. So interesting, kind of your, you recognize your maturity level at that point. Which I don't think a lot of people recognize that. I'm not mature enough for this, you know. In, in retrospect, I understand it. I don't think I understood it at the time. I knew enough that I had to focus on school, and I was willing enough to go to grad school, even though I wasn't quite ready for that either. So, the uh, I think I got more insight as I as I went along. So I don't want to give me too much credit uh, at that point. <laughs> Down the pike, I, then I said, I said, screw it. Um, what's the dumbest thing I can do? And I figured out what it was. Risk everything and, ha- and never have to think about it and say, well, what if? You know, because I, 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 I never had to look back after this. And uh, part of that was also going to a place called Upright Citizens Brigade and taking classes there, which had been recommended to me by a Saturday Night Live writer who I had once trained. So... This was follow through on everything to say, I don't ever want to have to say I didn't follow through because deep down I knew on one level I hadn't. And that wasn't going to sit well with me. 
So that's that was the other impetus. In in your practice, is that an issue for a lot of people that they just they have regrets or they haven't followed through on things they want to do in their life? A lot of people are not doing what they want to do. And typically because of something that happened in their past that told them they don't deserve it or they shouldn't go for it or, or to, you know, we learn fear, right? We learn fear as we grow up or we don't learn it, but most people do. And, you know, they say somebody didn't believe in me or I was told I wasn't good enough and they made it their, their persona. So they do stay stuck with it. And the regret is severe. I mean, I had my own for whatever reasons I had it. I, it was mine to deal with at that point. So I certainly see where people are stuck and, you know, when people want to do something creative, you have to ask them, it's like, well, what's stopping you? Well, I'm afraid. Okay. Well, then we got to get, get into what you're really afraid of, not what it looks like, but what it's, you know, what it's really about. And when I got to the point that I didn't care if I got rejected or not, I was more concerned of my own approval. Right. That was not going to be negotiable, negotiable. Getting you know rejected by someone, I was like, hell, I've been rejected my whole life. This should be easy. I'm a pro. Right. right. <laughs> do you ever have people who are like, you know, they come to do the work, but then you know their their mouth is saying one thing about wanting to change and do the work, but their actions are saying something else um, consistently. Well, sure. There's there's resistance, right? I and mean, you know, not to uh, ride the Freudian. Uh, piece again, but resistance is important. How to resolve resistance is ultimately typically the, the job of a therapist. So we have to figure out what it is that is going on with them that they keep doing it. But sure, it happens plenty. Yeah. So it's one of the hardest pieces. You know, you were talking about what's hard about doing the job. That's the that's the other hard part. Mm-hmm. Dealing with dealing with those conflicts where again people's motivation is relative. And you know, as as you know from training, you know, I'm sure we can both say it wasn't the dollar amount that somebody spent, but moreover, how much they valued that dollar. Yes. Yes, completely. Have you, has, has anger been a large part or some parts of work you've done with people like they've become angry at their circumstances? I, I've seen people get angry with their circumstances. I've seen people victimize themselves. Trying to get them out is, you know, if you have anger and rage, you have to get to the source of it. And again, that's one of those conflicts. How willing is somebody to really look at that, that stuff? How much are they really willing to look at, you know, what their childhood was really like? I once, I once had a client, you know, talk about what a perfect childhood they had. And, you know, their parents were divorced before they were 10. You know, there's just no way that's a perfect, but the story they told themselves was perfect. I, I don't know if, I don't know a perfect childhood with a divorce, a perfect divorce. It still wouldn't be if you had the, the best yeah. divorce ever. How, so people tell themselves the story until they're ready to experience the pain that they need to, to make change. And ultimately that's, that's, you know, that's the crux of it is dealing with the pain because that's how you move through it and you can get to the other side. Do you ever have to, I mean, I have no clue, I'm, I'm, but it just popped in my mind. Do you ever deal with any individuals where you're like, this is beyond me. Like there's something way below the surface here that is beyond what I can do to help this person. For me, I don't take on clients in the first place where 
it's not going to be indicated for me. My Whatever assessment I do before they ever even come in is usually thorough enough that I'll know going in. I don't certainly tout myself as someone who, you know, if you're absolutely crippled with anxiety, as an example, I don't, I, I understand anxiety and all its, you know, underpinnings, whether or not that's going to be a good fit. I'm not sure it would based, you know, based on what they've had going on. I, I think a lot of therapists do that. They take on clients where that's not their area of expertise. I try to stay in my lane. I hate to use that phrase, but knowing what I can and can't do. And again, taking a look at the motivation of the client is also important. So the pre-screen is pretty important for me. And albeit when people get to me, typically they've screened me. So they, they want what I'm, what I'm selling. Gotcha. Talk to me about, I'm not sure, I've, I've had several kind of therapists on throughout the time of the podcast, but I don't think I've ever discussed with them the role of medication within your work. Tell, tell me a little bit about the importance or maybe is that changed within your profession? Well, there's lots of theories about medication. The, the basic one that I work off of, uh, there's a psychiatrist who has a, a wonderful book called The Feeling Good Handbook, I believe it's called. It's sort of, I don't want to say the Bible of this subject, but medication and psychotherapy and the combination of it can be very powerful. Some people need to be on medications. Some people can be over-prescribed. So I think it's really an art form to be able to get to a psychiatrist or, let's say, nurse practitioner who really understands medication really well. And again, so some people are really struggling. If you're super depressed, you may need something to lift your mood. Again, there's, there's genetic components. So it plays a role, certainly. I don't think everybody should be medicated. I think there's plenty of people who are over-medicated. I think there's people who rely on medication. And it can interfere sometimes with them digging in to some of the issues. Um, if I have a client who's got a lot of trauma, I want to be careful that they're not going to drop too low and have too much pain dealing with it. And again, it's a it's an art because you want to make sure you, you have a client who you understand how resilient they may be. So people, I think you and I probably both come across this where people talk about medication and they'll get into the, oh, it's the pharmaceutical companies and all they want right. to do is drug. And, and again, there's, you know, as there's an $8.5 million lawsuit coming from the uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, right. uh, you know, it's not, it's not that it's totally untrue. But people will also take regular drugs and don't think like, what, you're not paying a drug dealer? What's the, what's the difference here? <laughs> uh, you just like what one does more because you say you got high. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? So it's finding that balance. But it, I think it has to, it, for some people, it needs to play a part. And the best situation is a client who is proactive in their care and really wants to participate in designing how this is going to work out. Again, positive psychology, person-centered, and they say, yeah, I don't want to feel like this anymore. I don't want to be a victim of my past. I want to have good things. So the resilient piece can come out. If you can tap it, it's great. And medications can help. It, it can vary. In some cases, it'll lift the bottom up so somebody's not as depressed. When it comes to other issues such as there's med medication-assisted treatment now for people struggling with drug abuse. 
And also when you have severe mental health disorders, psychosis, schizophrenia, et cetera, well, meds are going to play a part. Uh, the best thing is uh, don't do drugs in the first place. Your odds on having to do meds or anything else are going to be much better and you have a better outcome. And I think that's often underscored, understated. Right. What's the future of your profession and your mind, if you had to speculate over many years and the decades, if, if you've even thought about it? You know. Oh, sure. No, I've, I've, I've thought about it. The upside of the pandemic has been that more people have engaged in services. Uh, things like Talkspace, which we've seen Michael Phelps touts, BetterHelp is another online platform. Definitely more people are engaging in mental health services. I think people who have insurance uh, and can utilize their insurance, I think more people than ever are probably doing that. My hope would be that mental health is not stigmatized. And I know we had, um, uh, we in the last couple of years, I know there's the, the thing about parity. I don't think we have parity for mental health, even though I've you know, told that we do. I don't believe it's there. It's not there for substance abuse treatment. My hope is that it can be treated like anything else and is, again, you know, whatever problems we have in our healthcare system. I, I don't know how that's going to go exactly. I, I'm, I'm concerned that the stigma is still so strong. And, you know, we have uh, social issues that are so massive that it does interfere with the ability to do that. So it, it, it's, a tough, it's a tough ball game that way. Is there any other theories that or styles of practice that you see coming online over time that maybe are not being used now, but you could see becoming important in the future? Well, there's some that are sort of gaining more acceptance now, things like EMDR to work with trauma, brain spotting, and there's different techniques that are growing. I'm a big fan of uh, experiential therapy, where clients, you know, almost re-experience certain times in their life to get through and get unstuck. I think it can be great for, let's say, releasing trauma. So there's some definite upsides. I think as this becomes more mainstream, and certainly, you know, when we see um, famous people, celebrities, let's call them, talking about mental health and their own struggles, and that becomes more mainstream, it's going to normalize things more. And um, we need just a ton more of it. That's awesome. I'll tell you that I, I could, I would say this, but I love talking to therapists on the show. It's just a different nuanced conversation about the human condition, uh, which is really interesting. But as we wrap up, I would like to ask this question of thinking about it is what have you learned about humans from your work? Just like in life, I'd say they struggle and they suffer how resilient they are is always very interesting to watch. People can recover from unbelievable traumas. And I've seen it. I, I, you know, I understand it thoroughly. So doing the work, if you didn't have a, you know, look, we work in a helping profession, right? So you have this idea that humans can, can do and grow and, it makes you appreciate the human condition a little more, human potential, certainly, right? We, you know, we're, we set up clients to, to grow. That's, that's, in some level, that's a commonality. 
So I think that that to me is what always gets, uh, I hope, reinvigorated. It still has. I think as long as it is, I, I can do my job. As long as I feel people can actually dig in and want to get better, it, it, no matter how difficult the given day is, and some days are really tough, uh, you're ready to get up the next day and do it. That's awesome. Jason, thank you so much for being on. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Same here, Darren. It's really just you have great questions and you have a great insight to the whole psychology. I'm sure it's played out in everything you do. <laughs> I'm sure much like yourself, and obviously you're doing that, and um, uh, it plays a major role in everything that I do. And certainly I'm trying to impart that upon uh, people in my life as you know, we we're on the countdown here for next week and, and beyond for different yeah. things coming up. <laughs> you know, I yeah. can't even imagine for you, you're probably like counseling people on the election. It's not, you know, the fall people have, people have this, people have the stressors over it. The, the number one comment I've heard all year verbatim is, gee, you must be really busy right now. That's, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the, the, the zeitgeist of thought process that people have yeah. as to what the world is like. So, Again, you know, we're, we're humanists, right? We take care of people. So we just hope everybody gets happy and, and has enough self-care. Most definitely. Well, thanks again for the chat and we will be in touch. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching, and finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences. And it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So get the donut, stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone. Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, radio has been called theater of the mind. So let's tell a story with sound effects. <laughs> Wow, it's like I was in the story. Almost makes me forget this was supposed to be about saving big with Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.